we are going to continue in the book of Revelation. So let's pray. Father, <clears throat> I pray that you would pull back the veil today. That we just have a glimpse of your throne room, of your presence, of your goodness. That we would just taste and see, that we could touch your garment just a little bit, Father. Because we know that if we could just touch your garment, our whole world would change. So give us eyes to see, hearts with fertile soil, minds to comprehend. Father, feet that want to run with obedience and ears to hear. May this bring life to us in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you guys. But I thoroughly enjoyed Revelation chapter 4 last week. I enjoyed studying it. And I enjoyed thinking about what the throne room or what the throne would look like in heaven. And contrary to those belief or those beliefs, God, God's throne has wheels on it. Can you believe that? One of the craziest thoughts to think about but God's throne has wheels on it. Now, I mean, we're not going to press that into a theological belief that we put on our website that, that we champion as a value here. But really what it's helped me understand is God is so much bigger, God is so much stronger, mightier, and things in heaven are a lot different than what I think about sometimes when I pray. So what happened last week is John was taken up to heaven to see what was going on at the throne. God was sitting on his throne. So picture his throne, what you see his throne as. Picture wheels on that throne because you're not being biblical if you don't. So God's sitting on his throne with his wheels. And while he's doing that, thousands upon thousands are worshiping. And then ten thousands times ten thousands are worshiping around his throne. You know, sometimes it's really fun to hear us singing, uh, you are worthy of it all, or I exalt thee, and you hear the cry, and you hear all these voices coming together as one with power. Amen? And how fun it is to hear whatever we have in here, 140, 150 people, 130 now that the kids are out. Who knows? I wasn't good at guessing how many M&Ms were in a jar. Never won that. However many people are in here, how fun is it? How uh, powerful is it to hear us all crying with one voice, you are worthy of it all. But now imagine the throne room with thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands standing before his throne worshiping. Praise God. And then there were 24 elders who were taking off their crowns, taking off their authority, taking off the um, reward of their life, and they're laying at his feet saying, you are worthy of it all. God, you are worthy of it all. So all of heaven was ministering. And not only were there angels ministering, well, not only were there elders and thousands upon thousands, there were these angels 
four angels. One had the face of an ox and one that appeared to be like a human. And the other was a, um, a lion. And then what was the uh, fourth one? Eagle, thank you. So they had the eagle. And these things had eyes all over them. They had eyes in front and they had eyes in back and they covered their bodies. And they didn't have the two wings that we think about. These things had six wings. And these six wings had eyes that covered them front and back. And guess what they were doing? They were worshiping. And I've heard some people say the closer you get to God, the scarier things get. Because could you imagine seeing that type of being show up at your house? Because my first inclination would be, that's not an angel. Point being is, heaven is still going to be a place that we're surprised by. Heaven is going to be far greater and still even uniquely different than what we've ever imagined. And I shared the story where uh, one of my best friends, Roland, in college, we were having our just fight about God. And he asked me, he said, so you think that Jesus is white? And I looked at him and I said, and you think that Jesus is black? And I said, well, of course he's white. And he said, well, of course he's black. And guess what? Jesus is not white or black. And God doesn't look like this picture that I have in my mind either. God looks completely different. And what that calls me into is, is a greater desire to read his scriptures and to understand him more and to know him more so that he becomes more familiar with me. Amen? But as scary as these angels with six wings and eyes all over them may be, what we have to realize is this, is heaven is still our home. That's where we're all going to go if by faith we, we trust Jesus. Amen? It's not about us loving Jesus. It's about us by faith believing that his son died on the cross for our sins and that he resurrected the grave, that our sins are forgiven in him. Amen? So heaven is our home, so, so one day we're going to get to experience this with peals of thunder and rolls of lightning and water that looks like just crystals and mirrors. And he's going to have this crown, right, with all these colors. That's our home. And Revelation 4 was trying to encourage us in that. And the thing about heaven being our home is that heaven is where everything we care about should be. We have to remember that. Heaven is a place where everything we care about should be. So guess what? Why? Jesus is there. God is there. We should care about that first. Amen? Heaven is a place that we get to go to where everything we care about is there. Our family members who know Christ will be there. Our friends who know Christ will be there. Our coworkers who know Christ. I didn't say they were your friends. Just your coworkers who know Christ will be there. There will be no pain. There will be no suffering. Our tears will be wiped away. 
So as we think about heaven, we have to also think about that this place is our home. This is not our home right here. As comfortable as life can be, as comfortable as MCF or your family or the people that you hang out with the most can be, this is not your home. You are nothing but an alien to this world. You have another destination. We have another destination to go. Amen? This is not the last stop. So today's message is complicated. Uh, I want to encourage you to keep listening or you will quickly get lost. Um, I was frustrated. I typically try to have the sermon done on Thursday. Um, then I'll send it to Miss Carissa, and Carissa will do the PowerPoint. If it's not done on Thursday, then after Bible Club, I might spend a couple hours and then send it to Carissa on Friday. Well, this week, Monday didn't work out well, studying just from the standpoint of, for lack of a better term, this isn't what it is, just writer's block. And it wasn't necessarily writer's block. You're just trying to comprehend and understand how to communicate this in a clear way. Tuesday, you got a little bit of ground, and it's like, I just don't love it. Wednesday, I told Macy, she said, well, maybe it's just going to be a worship service, buddy. I'm like, you're not helping. Like, maybe it will be, but by faith, I'm not going to stand on that. So Thursday, I just told Macy, Wednesday, Thursday, I have to, God has to do something. I hope God did something so, because um, all my work Thursday was thrown away and I restarted everything on Thursday and was able to finish Thursday. So um, I, hope, I hope that I'm able to clearly communicate, but I also understand that this is complicated and maybe it's not as complicated. Maybe I'm just not as smart as all of you guys, which is most likely the case. But... Um, Stick around, stay tuned in. We're going to talk about a seven-sealed scroll that John will see. Now, the type of scroll is different than many scrolls. The scroll that John sees is unique in the fact that it is in the right hand of the Father. So God is holding this scroll in his right hand. Now, what we understand based upon scripture is the right side or the right hand of God often represents power and authority. So God is holding this scroll in his right hand with power and authority. So nothing's going to take away this scroll from his hand. It means something to him. So he's holding it in his hand. It has writing on both sides. It's almost as if it's pointing to how much information was on it and that the information can't be contained. There's so much that you had to write on both sides. It is a uh, scroll that has seven seals, not just one. And then this scroll couldn't be opened by anyone in heaven or on earth or under the earth. So this scroll is unique. So many have debated what the scroll is. Is it a title deed to earth? Is it a last will or a testament? Is it 
Ezekiel's book of Lamentations, you can find in Ezekiel uh, chapter 2, verse 10. Is it Daniel's sealed book that you can find in Daniel 12, verse 4? What is this scroll? Yet there might be a clue. Um, there might be a clue. And I use the word might, um, and I don't use the word might lightly. There might be a clue. And based upon what was frustrating me as I was studying and looking at this is there's so many different perspectives of what the scroll is and how it's going to pan out, right? And even next week, it gets more complicated. The book of Revelation is highly complicated, and I think that's why I'm enjoying studying it, don't love presenting it all the time, because there's so many different perspectives. So I will present a perspective today that I do believe is truthful. I think that it's the interpretation of how we should see it. But there are some people who are older, wiser, more mature in the word than I am. They might have an issue with it, which I don't think they will. Either way, Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. See, what makes this unique is only certain legal documents, such as a land deed, ever had writing on both sides, according to many theologians and commentators. So what that does is that helps us understand potentially what kind of seal, or sorry, what kind of scroll this was. So When land was sold or awarded in Israel, a deed was drawn up describing the terms of the purchase. The terms were written on the scroll. The terms were written on the scroll, and then they were sealed. Right? It makes sense. Write them down, roll it up, seal it. You can't get in it. Nothing can be changed unless it's opened, right? But what was unique about this type of scroll is often what would happen is the scroll was written on on the inside, and then on the outside, the summary of the inside was out there. Now, the summary of this deed was written on the outside so that you didn't have to look on the inside. But if, for example, I said, hey, Landon, I bought this land from you, and then we fill out the scroll, and then the summaries on the outside, if that's ever debated by someone and they say, hey, I don't trust that the summary is accurate, then you'd have to go to a magistrate, and the magistrate, a qualified person who had the ability to authenticate the scroll, would have to open it up and then look at the terms. So on the outside, the double-sided essentially meant that, you know, it was the summary, So the land was granted to the new owner upon that transaction. And then again, if there was any doubt, you'd have to go to the magistrate, resulting in the whole deed being verified of the sale. So I say that to say, I think a reasonable, I'm not standing saying, thus saith the Lord on this, but I do believe that a reasonable 
guess about what this scroll is will lead us to it being a land deed. Now you say, what do you mean it's a land deed? We're going to keep on getting there. So for context of today's message, I want to look at a, a few stages of life that we've experienced. The first one we look at is, in the beginning, God created us, right? And he said, it, we are good. In the beginning, he created, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. So in the beginning, innocence was created, but par uh, paradise was lost, right? Adam and Eve ended up s sinning. So Genesis 1, 26 through 30, then God said, let us make mankind in our, our image, in our image so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, in the birds, in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. So God, in the beginning, gave Adam and Eve the earth as their home to fill and to take ownership of. It was paradise. It's where he walked with them. So he gave them the keys to earth. He gave them purpose for the earth. And all of us are familiar with the story of Adam and Eve, I'm sure. But essentially, God gave them the position of authority in the earth. And then what did Adam and Eve do with it? They gave that position up. So Adam and Eve both sold their right to this position by disobeying God and allowing sin into the world and their life. So God told them to do this in Genesis, gave them power and authority and a plan for the earth. And then when Satan came and tempted Eve, Eve essentially gave up her right to Satan. So now the question must be, if Adam and Eve gave up their authority to overrule or to rule over the earth and to subdue, do it and to grow it and be fruitful and multiply, if they gave that power up, who has the power now? Who has power and reign over the earth right now? Well, the New Testament gives us a hint. 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under control of the evil one. Right? Right? So this is pointing to 
the whole world is not under control of Adam and Eve anymore, that that was forfeited, and that's now given to the evil one. Okay, and then you guys remember Jesus in the wilderness. He's fasting, right? And he's being tempted by Satan. And what happens is Satan brings him up to this high place, and he's seeing all the kingdoms of the earth. And uh, Luke 4, 6 says this, And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So Satan takes Jesus up to this high place, and he says, look, I've been given this authority. I can give you everything on earth. So who's the ruler of the earth? The one who's saying he has authority over the earth. And the one who's saying he has authority over the earth right now, because the power's been given to him, is Satan. John 12, 31 says this. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. So because the authority of earth is not in the right hands, the whole earth waits for its kinsman redeemer. So what God intended in the beginning of time, now he understood we were going to fail because all the omni words, right? He sees past time. He understands the decision. So he, in the best sense, not that he made me do this, right? We're not robots. But in the best sense, he knew that we were going to fail, so he preordained Jesus to die. But what God intended, what God created us for, is that we would walk in paradise in the garden with him and dwell with him for the rest of eternity. We're just not supposed to eat from a tree. But we messed that up. And when we messed that up, we gave all the authority that we were given to the enemy. And now we need someone to save us. Remember, Adam and Eve became poor. They gave up their authority when they sinned. Essentially, they sold their property. So we move from this innocence created to paradise lost into this maybe this new age, the Jewish age, right? Where the redemption, with the redemption of the land of Israel. In Israel, land could not be sold permanently because God ultimately owned it. That's the way in the Old Testament they operated. We see this in Leviticus 25, 23. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. And that can preach too. Your money ain't yours. Your land ain't yours. Your life ain't yours. Because who owns it? God owns it. Amen? So in the Old Testament, they were operating. They were saying, hey, look, you can sell this land. Fine. You can sell your 1,000 acres. You can sell your 500 acres. But it's really not a permanent transaction because it's God's. So if we are paying attention to this point, um, if we are paying attention, this is to point us to the fact that Adam and Eve, what Adam and Eve gave away wasn't permanent, right? So Adam and Eve gave their inheritance, whatever, away. They gave their right and their authority away. 
but it wasn't theirs to give away. So the transaction wasn't permanent. Amen? That's good news. What Adam and Eve gave away wasn't permanent because ultimately what they gave away is whose? God's. So Leviticus 25, 24. Throughout the land that you, uh, that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. So if a man could recover financially, he's allowed to buy his land back. So I have to sell my land because I hit some hard times. But per law, if that person comes across some money, they can buy the land back. But when Adam sinned, he became bankrupt and he couldn't buy it back. Adam didn't have enough money. He didn't have enough uh, value. He didn't have enough holiness. He wasn't worthy enough. He became bankrupt. And as I was sharing this, I began to, of course, see the gospel message being preached in this as well. But when Adam sinned, he couldn't buy back his authority. He couldn't ask for his authority. He couldn't earn the authority. What he had lost was lost forever, if it was up to him. Yet, law stated in the Old Testament that if you couldn't buy back your property, a family member could buy it back for you. A family member could buy it. Leviticus, it had to be a blood relative though, right? Blood relative, it just couldn't be anyone. It couldn't be Matt Mayberry saying, hey Joey, I know you lost your land, here's some pizza money, go do it. <laughs> Don't work that way. I mean, like, we're blood relatives, like, way, 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 way back. I mean, somewhere with this line, too. I mean, you know Matt and I. I mean, I'm a little worse back here, but, and he's older than me, too. But, um, so we're related somewhere. But had to be a blood relative that could come buy your property back. So if you lost your property, if you had the money, you could eventually buy it back. If not, a blood relative a kin, someone related to you, could help you get that property back. Leviticus 25, 25. Yeah, if one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. This means that the whole earth, what Adam had sold, what Adam had gave up, he can't purchase the whole earth. You and I today have been waiting for a Ken, a blood relative to come buy the earth back, to come buy the authority, to come buy what God rightfully gave to us back. So the thing about it is, though, is this, is a Ken has to be a blood relative. So what ends up happening is Jesus took back all the power on the cross. But in the scroll and seven seals, um, it is him executing taking the earth back. What we're going to see over the next several weeks, chapter 6 through 22, is we're going to see the execution of Jesus taking 
what is rightfully his back. Amen? And that's what we're going to see over the next several chapters. And it's going to be complicated. So Jesus as a kin, blood, blood relative of you and I, and the reason why he's a blood relative is because the word became flesh. And when the word became flesh, now he's able to die and pay for us as a kin. So, Romans 8, 19 through 23. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So we are creation, whether we are or not, the rocks will cry out. But creation right now is groaning and longing for the return of Christ. You and I should be longing and groaning and eagerly awaiting for our kinsman, redeemer, to purchase back the whole earth. Now, it was all finished on the cross. Don't get that confused. Everything was completed on the cross. But the seals will be the execution, the steps. So we're still longing and waiting and desiring for all of this to be his once again. Amen? The book of Ruth is an incredible model of God's plan for redemption. In Cliff Notes, Naomi has forfeited her land. Um, in steps, uh, Boaz, who is a wealthy kinsman, uh, he redeems the land, right? Not for the land's sake, but to purchase his bride. Similarly, Adam had became poor and had been forced to give up his possession. Only a kinsman was entitled to claim back the land. But he would have to be able to redeem it. That would mean paying the price for which it had been sold. And the price that had to be paid to redeem back what was lost was the price of sin and death. And the price that could only pay that was the blood of Jesus. So only a sin sinless kinsman of Adam could redeem the land. Only a sinless, perfect human, the blood of Adam, could redeem the land. Amen? So as we get back to chapter 5, 
And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? This mighty angel, it says, this wasn't just a lower class angel. The scriptures are emphasizing a mighty angel, this powerful angel. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? This mighty angel is asking a great question. Who has the power? Who has the power like that of a magistrate? Who has the authority like that of a magistrate? Who's been given the right? Who possesses the right to open this? See, in the Old Testament, the magistrate had to open it because they were the one qualified. You and I couldn't do it. So what this angel is saying is, who is the one? Where is the one who can open up this scroll? So there's this issue in heaven right now that this angel is frustrated with. And here's how it proceeds. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. This angel couldn't find anyone. John sees a mighty, mighty angel that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. No one. Abraham couldn't. David couldn't. Moses couldn't. Paul couldn't. Mary couldn't. Not even Jesus' mother. Gabriel couldn't. Mark Miller couldn't. You or I could not. Angel couldn't find anyone. So there's an issue. There wasn't anyone who had the authority to open this scroll. So when John saw this, when John saw this, here's what he said, verse 4. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open up the scroll or look inside. And I ask you, is your heart breaking for the things of God? John wept because he saw everything that was missing. He saw everything in this moment that would not happen. And he said, if there's no one who can open up this scroll, if, if there's no one who can open up this deed, then, then what God created in the beginning of time to be redeemed will never happen. And his heart broke. His heart broke for you and I. His heart broke for our grandparents and our great-parents, our gr yeah, great-great-grandparents, our great-parents, <laughs> our great-parents, our great-grandparents and our great-great-great-grandparents and our nieces and our nephews and our grandchildren and I guess our great-children and our children. He wept because he said, it's lost. There's no one that can open it. There's no one that, that can prove that this, this is what God intended for this place. And I ask you, is our heart breaking for Turkey right now? Is our heart breaking for our, 
Are we weeping over Turkey? Are we weeping over our neighbors? Are we weeping over our church, our family members? John saw that there was something lost and he wept. And it's like, God, pull back that veil from our eyes. And may we see similarly to John so that when we see that things are not right, that we weep. And see, Scripture is emphasizing here that he wept and he wept. This was a gut-wrenching wail. This wasn't just tears. This is one of those moments where you just cannot quit crying. And the tears come and they come and they come. And you might even get loud and it's just gut-wrenching where nothing else matters other than the emptiness and the frustration that you feel inside. And John was feeling that because this was lost. What God intended was lost because there was no one, there was no one who could be the kinsman to Adam. The earth was not able to be redeemed. And it would stay in the hands of the current owner. He wept. Verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So an elder reached out to John as he was weeping, and he said, don't weep. I see the answer. I just want to say, in your situations today, don't weep either. Because we see the answer in Scripture. Amen. Don't weep. We have the answer. We look at so many ephemeral, valuable things on earth. But not even death can separate you from the love of Christ. Amen? Don't weep. I see an answer. And that's what the elder was presenting. Don't weep, John. I see the answer. Here's what he says, essentially. The prophesied lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is here. Essentially what's going on is there is a magistrate that can open this seal. So what was intended will take place. What was intended will take place. Come on, somebody. What was intended will take place. It's not lost. Because of Jesus, what was once lost, we will have again. The second Adam, Jesus, will set it straight. One author says it's fitting that Jesus is depicted as a lion because it's strength, it's heroic spirit, it's the king of all beasts, and it's vigilancy. The lion sleeps with its eyes open. 
But not only was it to, uh, Jesus depicted as a lion, he was also depicted as the lamb. Then John saw a lamb who was prophesied to be slain standing. The lamb that defeated death. The lamb that was slain was standing. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive today. So the slain lamb, he saw standing. But um, this lamb still had its wounds. Some people think that um, when we get to heaven, Jesus' wound, Jesus will still have his wounds, right? And like he'll be the only person in heaven that still has scars. And there's an argument amongst theologians, well, why would, why would Jesus allow us to see that? And they said, in their twisted way, they believe that it, it, it somehow will just allow us to praise him and bring honor to him even more. Because we'll have a greater understanding and revelation of all that he's done for us. So this lamb was still, still had wounds on it. Yet this lamb also had four creatures around it and the elders. It had uh, seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits. It's possible that the seven horns, horns, horns represent complete power, as seven means completion or perfection. So, you know, horns often, you know, mean offensive, defensive weapons, maybe just complete power. Seven eyes, all-seeing, all-knowing, all-wisdom. That's what's going on here. Now, this lamb, of course, is Jesus. So heaven had a predicament that no one could open it. But now we see that the lamb is here. The lion and the lamb is here. And this lion and this lamb has the authority to open up this scroll. And then we have the next age, which would be the church age, right? In tribulation which we're going to get into over the next several weeks. But verse 7, he went. So he, meaning Jesus, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. So Jesus received the scroll, the title deed to the earth. So what's happening is God was holding on to this scroll. He was holding on to it with his mighty, powerful authority and right hand. And then Jesus came and got it because it was time to redeem the earth. Jesus comes to take it so that then the next part, the Armageddon, the tribulation, all the crazy things that we think revelation is, will take place. So Jesus received the scroll and beca because he was deemed worthy or the appropriate one to open it. Its contents now will come to pass. Why? 
because when the scroll is challenged and it's open, opened, when you open it, then what's in there will come to pass. So that means I bought these, this land from Landon now that we've opened it. It's proven. The land is mine. Now as they open it, as, the, as they peel back each seal, whatever's written in it, right, that's going to happen. And what we're going to see is as Jesus pulls back these seals, it's going to happen. Some of it, people have suggested, has already happened. Some people would suggest that we're already in the sixth seal. We will discuss that another time. <laughs> it's going to get complicated. But um, the contents now that they're in Jesus' hands means that what was in there is going to come to pass. And then what happens next is Jesus is worshipped because he's worthy. So he takes the scroll. He becomes the kinsman redeemer. He can buy back the land, right? And then all of heaven also worships him. And what I say is just as last week God is worthy of our worship, Jesus is worthy of our worship. Jesus is worshipped because he's worthy. Verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open up its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the, um, and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. So there's some movement in heaven right now. There's worship, but there's also a purpose. And they're worshiping that Jesus is the one who's going to bring about complete restoration to what the Father intended originally. So moving forward, we will see Jesus, um, who is fully man and fully God, because the word became flesh. He can be considered our family member, thus resulting in him being our kinsman redeemer. The scroll will be opened and the beginning of the end will begin as he comes to redeem the lost. So just as God is sitting on his throne is worthy, Jesus is worthy to be praised. And Jesus deserves our praise today. Amen? 
And that's how we will finish chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that there is one worthy who is of our blood to redeem me, to redeem um, this church, to redeem this world. Father, I pray that you would cultivate in us just the thankfulness of uh, you being our kinsman redeemer, a true appreciation. Father, not just the cliche that Jesus died for me, but may we have a deep knowing. May we taste and see that you are good. May the living water flow through us and give us an understanding of how, how perfect um, you really are. Bless us this week as we ponder chapter four and chapter five in the throne room. Prepare us for um, chapter six. In Jesus' name, amen.